David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his, out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because of the Ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remains in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom in all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings... He blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came up to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, thank you for reading that long passage with a lot of names in it. Um, this is a great passage. It's a fascinating and bizarre passage. There's some weird stuff in here, and I'm excited about that. I think that some of the weird passages are oftentimes the ones that are most powerful for me. Uh, we're going through this series on the life of David right now, and we're skipping ahead a little bit. Last week, we looked at David showing Saul mercy back in, in 1 Samuel 26. And today, we're skipping ahead all the way to 2 Samuel 6. So let me give you a quick rundown what happened in that roughly, you know, 16 chapters or so, 17 chapters. And uh, basically, Saul kept on hunting David down. And eventually, uh, Saul got cornered by his enemies. Remember, uh, David said, 
I'm not going to kill him. Either the Lord's going to kill him or he'll, he'll die in old ripe age or he'll die of his enemies. And so eventually Saul got cornered by his enemies, but it was not his enemies who killed him. You see, David considered Saul's life more precious than Saul considered it himself. And Saul fell on his own sword and killed himself at the end of 1 Samuel. So that's 1 Samuel 31. And then we move into 2 Samuel. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, the reason why we have a 1 and 2 Samuel isn't because it's two different stories, but because a scroll is only so long. So they're writing on these scrolls, and then they get to an end, the end of the scroll, which they kind of planned it strategically, because Saul... The downfall of Saul happens at the end of the first scroll. And we're in the middle of, of David's ascension. And David's going to start going down here soon, too. But next week is probably the tip-top of David's ascension, and then it starts deteriorating for David after that. But it's, it's one story. It's intended to be communicated as one story. They just had to use two different scrolls. scrolls. So we have two different books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Same authors, same same uh, story, everything like that. But we're in 2 Samuel today, and what has happened is David's been recognized as the king, and he has decided that he needs to go get the Ark of the Covenant, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and return it to the, the house of the Lord, return it to the city of the Lord, which is Jerusalem. And that's what today's story is about, but there's this fascinating thing where they're moving the Ark, and it starts to tumble and Uzzah reaches up and touches the ark, and, it, and God kills him at that moment. And that is just a pretty bizarre thing that happens in, in the Bible, and a lot of us aren't familiar with this passage. But I think that when you study this passage, it's not only something that's just like weird Bible trivia, but it is at the center of the entire story of Scripture. I think that this is kind of a microcosm of what the Bible is trying to communicate. And so this story is actually very important and very helpful for us as we look at the Scripture. So what I want to do is walk through this in three different points. The first is going to be the desire for the ark. Why did David want this thing? What, what is it? That sort of thing. The second point is going to be the death because of the ark. Why did God kill Uzzah when he was just trying to steady the ark on the cart? And the third is going to be dancing before the ark. What does it mean that David is, is dancing even more contemptibly than this? That's an odd word that doesn't appear very often in the scripture. What does, why is he dancing like a crazy person? Why is his wife getting upset with him? Because he's dancing in his underwear and exposing himself. Uh, it, it's, it's a fun passage. So let's hop in here. First, the desire for the cart. The desire for the ark, excuse me, not the cart, the ark. The desire for the ark. In order for you to understand this thing, you have to understand what the ark of the covenant is. Now, the Old Testament is a little confusing for some new readers. If you're new to the Old Testament, you might be like, wait, I thought Noah had the ark, not David. And that is true also. Uh, Noah did have the ark. Uh, there are two arcs in the Old Testament. There's Noah's Ark that we're, most of us are familiar with. All the animals got on Noah's Ark, which is just a big boat. And then there's this Ark, which is more like a chest. It's, it's probably the size of, of this thing here, this, uh, this monitor. It's, not, it's like three feet by two and a half feet. So it's, it's not huge. It's the size of an end table type of thing. It's, uh, we, ha we actually have a picture of it. I'll throw it up here. There it is. All right. 
So that's, that's what we're looking at. It's, it's laid with gold on the inside and on the outside, and it has this cover. The cover is called a mercy seat. And then there's these two angels that are uh, on each end of it, and they have their wings over it. And then there's these, these four rings on the side, and they have poles going through them. So that's good with the picture. Thank you for sharing that. Um, but yeah, English is confusing, because in Hebrew, these two words, uh, Noah's Ark and this Ark, not the same word in Hebrew. Uh, Noah's Ark is, is something like Teva, and, and this Ark is more like Aram. Uh, but for some reason, English translates them both as Ark, which is just really weird. English is a weird language. I was watching a TV show earlier this week that proves this point, and uh, the main character said, uh, he was talking about, he was, he's an American trying to figure out British English, and he says, so say I got fired for putting cleats in the trunk of my car, and the other guy said, well, you got the boot for putting your boots in the boot, and that's English for you, okay? We just use the same word for all kinds of different things. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant, that's, that's what it is. That's what it looks like. And inside of it, Moses put the Ten Commandments, which is why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ten Commandments were the covenant with the Lord. And so they were placed inside. There were a few other items that were placed inside of it. But it is the most holy and sacred object in the history of Israel. It's the, their most precious possession in many ways. And it, in Exodus chapter 25, it's describing uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is actually described as the throne of God or the footstool of God. It's like his earthly throne. His throne might be in heaven, but this is his footstool where he sits enthroned on earth, and it's where he is going to meet with his people throughout all the Old Testament. So listen to this from Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. He says, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in, a, in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is the place where God dwelled. It's the place where God spoke to his people. I love how Paul Tripp describes the ark. He says that the ark was a symbol of God's presence, a symbol of his holiness, a symbol of his grace, a symbol that pointed to the person and work of the Lamb that would someday come. There was no more important religious item in the history of Israel than the ark. And so we have this really important ark, and it's hanging out at some dude's house named Abinadab. What it's doing there is actually a fascinating story also. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's actually very important. We skipped it because we went straight to the life of David, but I think that is a very important story. Let me give you a little recap on how the ark got to Abinadab's house in 1 Samuel 4. It's because the Israelites are idiots. That's, that's the short summary of it. Basically what happened is they were fighting the Philistines per use, and they decide to bring the ark into the battle as a good luck token. So they bring the ark in saying, oh, God will, God will cause us to defeat our enemies. But God's like, I'm not a good luck token. You don't just bring me in so that you can win a battle. And so what actually happened is he let the Philistines defeat the Israelites. And the Philistines captured the ark, took it back to their land. And then one of the funniest passages in the entire scripture happens. They take it and they put it in their temple with their god, Dagon, and their God is a fish God, and there, it's a statue of a fish God in there. 
And they leave it there, and they walk out, and they come back in, and the fish god has bowed down to the Ark of the Covenant. He, he's fallen on his face, bowing to it. So they say, whoa, this is weird. They pick it back up and, and put it back against the wall or whatever. They leave, they come back. The fish god, again, bowing before the Ark of the Covenant. This time his head has fallen off and his arms are falling off. And the Philistines are just take, taken aback by this. It's too much. Not only does this happen, but they start growing tumors. It starts physically affecting them. So they get freaked out. They're scared. And what do they do? They take the ark, and instead of carrying it by those, by those uh, rods that you saw going through those, those rings, which is the way that God told uh, the Israelites to carry it, they, they, they don't know that. So they just throw it on a cart, and they send it off. And, and the cart takes it into Israel. Eventually, it has a couple stops along the way, but it takes it into Israel, and it ends up at Abinadab's house. And that's where it stays for a long time. This is all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And so this has been 10, 15, 20 years. It's been hanging out at this guy's house for that long. Now, Abinadab had two sons. One was named Uzzah, and one was named Ahio. Now, Uzzah is the one that we see killed by the ark in a, in a few passages, in a few uh, minutes. So I think that's really important to know that he's been living with this thing for the past 15 or 20 years. It's not like he's unfamiliar with the ark. He knows what it is. He just treats it flippantly. So why is David moving it right now? And that's an important thing. There's two reasons why David is moving it from Abinadab's house. And I find this stuff very interesting. The first is David doesn't want to be a king like Saul was. You see, Saul was all about Saul. He's like, my name's going to be great. My name is Saul. I'm a head taller than all the rest of you. And this is about me. But David doesn't want to be a king that's about him. He wants Israel to know who the true king is, and that is God Almighty. And so he says, we need the ark, the, the representation of God's presence to us to be in the holy city, reigning with me. I need to be near to that. But not only does David want to show all of Israel who the real king is and start his kingship this way, you know, he's just made king, he's, he's, he's wanting to start it off on the right foot, but not only that, but he wants the ark himself. You see, David desired the presence of God. David knows that the ark represents the presence of God, and he wants that presence in his own life. I love how Psalm 27 puts this. This is David writing. He says, one thing I've asked the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David, he, he wants the presence of God, and he knows that this thing brings the presence of God. He wants that. You see, David might not be that different from those of you here today, here in person or on Zoom. You might be showing up to church because you want more God in your life. You want the presence of God. You might not know how to get that. You might be like, that's why I'm showing up here. I'm just hoping that God might show up in my life. I need to hear from him. And that's what David wanted. His desires weren't all that different than our own. But this ark, it's deadly. Uh, point number two, the death because of the ark. This is where the passage gets a little confusing if we're not familiar with the scriptures. 
Verse 6, well, let's start in verse 5, okay? So what have they done? They've gone and gotten the ark from Abinadab and Uzzah in Ohio. And Uzzah and Ohio are escorting the ark down to the city of God. They're like, look, we live with this thing for this long. We know how to handle it. We're going to escort it down with you. And so what are they doing? Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They're making it a big parade. It's a huge festival. Look what God has done. We've gotten the ark back. We're marching it back down. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because beside the ark of God. Last week, I emphasized, drove home the mercy of God, that God is merciful. God is long-suffering, that he's forgiving, that he's caring, that he's patient. And then we come to a passage like this. And, you know, it doesn't feel that way, right? It feels like Uzzah made one mistake, and God said, dead. And some of you might get to that passage and say, well, that's why I can't believe in God. I can't believe in a God that would kill someone for one mistake like that. That seems so petty. Does it not? That seems so short-fused. Why would he kill people like this? I love how R.C. Sproul describes this. He says, surely, this is what we're thinking as we read this. Surely Uzzah's reaction was instinctive. He did what any pious Jew would do to keep the ark from falling into the mud. He reached out his hand to steady the ark, to protect the holy object from falling. It was not a premeditated act of defiance toward God. It was a reflex reaction. From our vantage point, it seems like an an act of heroism. We can thank Uzzah. We, We think that Uzzah should have heard the voice of God, not killing him, but shouting down from heaven, Thank you, Uzzah, for keeping me out of the mud. And that's how I've always read this passage also. I've always read this passage as kind of poor Uzzah. You know, he was well-intentioned, but he broke the rules. I mean, you're not supposed to touch the ark. He broke the rules. And so that's what you get when you break the rules. Death. But I think that's the wrong way to interpret this passage. And you know, I've heard, I've heard sermons on this passage interpreted that way, and I just don't think it's exactly the right emphasis that we should be drawing from here. Because it's not simply that Uzzah broke the rules. It's much larger than that. You see, Uzzah disregarded the entire Pentateuch. The entire first five, chap- first five books of the Bible, he disregarded with this act. He disregarded the seriousness of his own sin, and he disregarded the seriousness of God's holiness. The entire story of the Pentateuch is how sinful humans can live in fellowship with a holy God. If you think about it, all the way back to Adam and Eve, what happened? Sinful humans in the presence of a holy God, so what does God do? He casts them out of the garden. And then the whole story is, how can we get back to the presence of God? 
And so that's what all of Leviticus is about. It gives you all of these strange laws about ritual cleanliness so you can come into the presence of God by being clean in this way. It's not about sin or not sin. It's about cleanliness in there. And so when you think about the holiness of God, what you need to think about is, uh, let me give you an illustration. It might be kind of like the sun. It's not that it's bad, the holiness of God. It's not bad. It's just intense. And so when you think about the sun, if you come near to the sun, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. The sun burns at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's special. It's unique. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart, special, unique. Now, no one gets burned by the sun and blames the sun. If you took a a, uh, spaceship and sent it toward the sun, and it burned up as it got close... You wouldn't be like, dang, son. You would say, well, I'm an idiot. I should have known that the sun was going to burn it up. And that is how this sacred object worked. It's not that it's bad, it's good, it's just intense. Now, the, the Ark of the Covenant is the most sacred object in all of Israel's history. And so it contained the presence of God. It was holy. It was to be kept in the holy of the holies. This emphasis, holies, holy of the holies, it's the center of the, the tabernacle, uh, where it's not just in the tabernacle, but it's in the very center of it. It's guarded by multiple veils from the people of God. The presence of God had to be uh, uh, separated because how can people, sinful people, live in the holy presence of God? That's why they had these veils, and it was kept in this special way, and God gave them all these rules on how to be carrying it. And so when you look at how Uzzah is carrying it, Let's just pretend Uzzah's carrying the sun. It's this holy thing, and he just reaches up and he touches the sun. That's the equivalent of what's happening here. It's this sacred object. But not only that, but they're breaking all these rules. It's not only that he touched it. Look at how they're carrying it. Are they using those poles that we saw earlier? No, they got that thing thrown up on a cart like Philistines. They're like, let's throw it on the cart. That's how it got here. Well, that's not how God's law says to carry it. They're not being careful with this thing. They're treating it flippantly. And so when it starts to fall over and Uzzah reaches up to study it, it's like he's disregarding this whole thing about God's holiness and his own sinfulness. What the whole Bible is trying to communicate, that how we come in is we have to, uh, we have, to have something atone for our sin. And he disregards that completely. And so what I love also, R.C. Sproul has another great quote on this. He says, it was an act of arrogance, a sin of presumption. Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. And what we can learn here about this is that sin is serious. Sin is serious. That God is holy. And our sin keeps us separated from a holy God. We need to be made right with God to go into his presence. One of my pet peeves is when I hear people say, I like to think about God like this. Because the the Bible describes what God is like. And it's not something that we can just fashion in our own image. We can't just decide how God wants to be interacted with. He's told us. He said, I'm holy. I am a real God. And you are sinful. And here's how you have to deal with your serious sin before you can 
go into my presence. We cannot make up our own version of God and think that he approves of all the things that we approve of. That's, that's what the people do that don't follow God. They do what's right in their own eyes. But God tells us what is right and what is wrong, and he tells us how we approach him according to his law. What I think is fascinating about this is you look at the next verse, and it tells us how David reacted to this happening. Because David's there. He saw this happen. Verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. If you look at the sub, the subnotes, it means breaking out against Uzzah. It was known as that from thenceforward. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So why was David angry? Was he angry at God for killing Uzzah? No. Was he angry at Uzzah for breaking the rules and touching the ark? No. David was angry because he wasn't going to get the ark of the, of the Lord in the city of David. He said, how can I get the ark to me? How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He wasn't going to get the presence of God as he desired. And so what did they do with it? Well, everybody's terrified of this thing, okay? So it's, it's sitting there, and it's like, whoa, what do we do with this thing? And they say, well, we got to put it somewhere. So they pawn it off on this guy, Obed-Gidim, who's not even, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, who is not even an Israelite. This is the equivalent of who wants a toxic waste dump in their backyard? We, this thing kills people. Uh, we're going to stick it somewhere. And so Obed-Edom, uh, the Gittite, takes it. And, but verse 11 says that the Lord remained, the, the Lord blessed him and his household. And so David hears about that and decides that he's going to try again. He's going to try to get the ark again. And time goes on. He's going to try to bring it down to the city of David. And that's where we get this point three, dancing before the ark, dancing before the ark. They go get the ark, and they do it differently this time. It's like David went home and read his Bible. And he took the poles that weren't supposed to even be taken out of the rings, and he put the poles back in the rings, and the people carried it. You see, God said, I don't want to be carried around on a cart. I want to walk with my people. And so they started carrying it. And verse 13, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. I love that. They go six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. Sacrifice. And it's representing that seventh day rest, which is one of my favorite things about being a Christian, is taking a Sabbath day where I just enjoy God's presence. I saw someone post on like Instagram or something like, oh, I really need a mental health day. And I'm like, man, I haven't thought that in a long time because I take one every week. It's called Sabbath. It's great. They go six steps, sacrifice. Some commentators, commentators are divided on this, but some commentators, and I love this interpretation, think that they made a sacrifice every six steps. So it's six steps, sacrifice, six steps, sacrifice, six steps, sacrifice. It would take a long time, but they were doing it intentionally. And all along the way, David is just dancing in, in, before this box. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod, which this is like the priestly garment. He's just dancing. He's lost all pretense. 
You don't see the big parade that happened in verse 5 where he had all the house of the Lord celebrating with songs and lights. What you see here is David dancing his heart out because he's got the presence of the Lord and he's approaching God correctly. And he's approaching God with reverence and respect. All he wanted was fellowship with God. He's lost the pretense. He's not worried about looking kingly. He's just dancing. And as they approach Jerusalem, Michael, which is Saul's daughter, who was given to to David in marriage at one point, uh, looks out the window and saw David dancing like that. And she thought, he's making a fool of himself. He does not look kingly. My dad would never act like that. I don't know if she thought that, but that would be my assumption. My dad would never act like that. Look how unkingly he looks dancing like this. And she, she addresses David, and David responds, it was before the Lord that I was dancing, not people. I will make myself even more contemptible or undignified than this. Because it's before the Lord. I don't care if I look like a fool. He's lost all his own pride. He's like, I just have the presence of God, and that's all I need. When I was in youth group, there was a song that we would sing that, that talked about this. Some of you might be familiar with it. It was like a David Crowder band song. And it, he said, like, I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion from my soul. And I will become even more undignified than this. Some may say it's foolishness. All right, la, 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 la. Yeah, that's the next part. It's just this beautiful image of, of David celebrating the presence of God. Now I want to end with this. What would happen if we found the Ark of the Lord today? Say they're doing an archaeological dig in Israel. They find the Ark of the Covenant. Would you touch it? Would you be afraid to touch it? I can understand why you might be afraid, and it is a sacred object but you have no reason to be afraid of touching this. And here's why. It's super awesome. If we found the ark today, it would just be an artifact. It would not be be the thing that it was in the Old Testament. Because the New Testament teaches us that we have more access to God now through Jesus than they ever did in the Old Testament. Listen, Listen to this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus is our enduring sacrifice. We can walk straight into the presence of God. We don't have to worry about the veils. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. God's presence is filling the earth. And it's filling the earth through the church of Christ. Not through symbols and artifacts. It's filling the earth through this good news, the good news about Jesus that transforms us. We are now the temple. You see, each of us has more of the presence of God in us than anyone in this Old Testament could ever imagine. We are the temple of God now. We have no fear. We can draw near. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. You see, Jesus is flesh is the curtain into the presence of God. Isn't that beautiful? And since we have a great high priest who over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, which is baptism. 
Guys, isn't this beautiful? That this holy power that Uzzah did not respect well and that his sin kept him separated from, Jesus has taken on our sin. We can walk straight into the presence of God. He lives with us. Isn't this joyful? I, I, I found a passage this week that I'd never seen before. In John chapter 20, verse 12, uh, one of the women has gone to find Jesus after he's resurrected. And she goes into the tomb and it says, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. What does that make you think of? That image of the ark a few moments ago with the angels, one at the head and one at the feet. You see, the angels are recreating the ark in the tomb, saying the presence of God is now filling the earth The Son has been resurrected. He is alive, and He lives with us. And friends, if David is dancing before the presence of God in that way, with his limited understanding of the revelation of God and and the presence of God, without Christ living in his heart in the way that he does ours, how should we, who have full access to the presence of God, be responding before the Lord with joy and thanksgiving? We're far too apathetic in our relationship with God. We treat it too flippantly. We, like Uzzah, have grown cold and forgetful of how powerful the presence of God is in our lives. You see, the guy who died was the one that had been living with the presence of God for like 20 years. Let's not grow cold and insensitive to the Spirit of God and the presence that He has in our lives. God It's transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. Let us enjoy his presence and his power. The way he's cared for our sins, he has died for them. He is our eternal, enduring sacrifice. We no longer have to make sacrifices. He is that sacrifice. And he leads us into the holy places through his perfect life and resurrection. We've been united with him. We're being risen to new life with him. When he appears, we will appear with him in glory. Isn't that good news? I love how C.S. Lewis says this, and I'm going to end with this. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's what I see with our spiritual lives far too often. Settling for not enough. So let us respond to Christ. Let us be even more undignified because it's only before him that we worship. We have a physical reminder today that we get to enter into the presence of God. You see, when Christ prepared for his death, he he initiated the sacred meal. And he said that when we celebrate this, we're reminded of his sacrifice for us. And God is with us in a real way as we celebrate the the Lord's table. It's like he's dining with us. We get this little appetizer of the kingdom to come, of our life with him. So he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the, the, the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we do that each week, we're remembering what Christ has done for us, that he is our sacrifice. That all the sacrifices of the Old Testament point us toward that that everlasting sacrifice that Christ made. 
and that we are his people. And so we respond to him in that. If you're not a Christian here with us today, this is the one part of our service that we would ask you to refrain from just because you wouldn't be being true to yourself. And the scripture tells us that this is a meal for those who are trusting in Christ. But today, you can trust in Christ. You can come into the presence of God. You can know the joy unending. That is trusting in Jesus with all of your being. And next week, you can participate in the communion meal with us. So we're going to pray, and we're going to stand and pray, and sing a last song, and, and celebrate this communion meal together. So let's, let's do that, church. You can stand. Father, as we come to your table, we, we want more of you. God, that's just what I'm encouraged by today and longing for today. It's more of you, God. Like David, I want more of you. And God, I am so insensitive to your voice so often. I have the complete revelation of God in my hands. I've got a dozen copies of it at home. And yet, I'm so insensitive to your voice. And God, I take for granted my salvation far too often. But God, I pray that you will restore to me the joy of my salvation. That I might rejoice and be undignified. That I might worship before you. That I might not care what others think of me because of what you have done for me. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.